Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp Therapy Online. Life doesn't come with a user manual. So when life stops working for you, it's pretty normal to feel stuck. Imagine somebody who spent, oh, say, 25 years being really distracted overwhelmed by clutter, and fluctuating between being really into obscure ancient history and not being able to find the motivation to do the dishes. That person is me, and apparently, if there were a user manual to life, it might have told me that I have ADHD and should talk to my doctor about that. Therapists are about as close to a manual as we can get. Folks who are trained to help you figure out challenging emotions and learn coping skills. 
BetterHelp has connected millions of people with licensed, registered therapists for convenient and secure online therapy. It's convenient and 100% accessible online. No waiting rooms, no traffic, and not even endless googling of therapist near me. You just fill out a questionnaire and get matched with an appropriate therapist. And if it doesn't click, BetterHelp makes it easy to switch providers. Everyone deserves to feel their best, so get unstuck with BetterHelp. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com persia. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash persia. Hello everyone, this is Trevor Cully and welcome to the History of Persia episode 34, A New Fleet. Before we get into the meat of this episode, I want to draw everyone's attention to some new developments for the podcast. If you missed my announcements a couple weeks ago, History of Persia is now officially on Lysium. Lysium is a new podcast app with a hand-picked catalog of educational podcasts. It really is a cool new service, and you should check it out. If high-quality, informative podcasts aren't enough incentive, then you should also know that Lyceum features discussion rooms where you can connect with myself as well as your fellow listeners, and a new opportunity to access bonus content. Lyceum offers premium content through their app. It's a different deal with every creator, and not every creator will have content there. But for a monthly subscription, you support the podcast and get access to a creator's Lyceum Plus content. For me, that means a duplicate of the $5 Great King tier that already exists on Patreon. For the same price, when you subscribe to my premium on Lyceum, you get access to all of the same content, which includes ad-free versions of every regular episode, but also bonus episodes each month. These cover topics that either didn't make it into the main show, or adjacent topics I discovered while doing research that weren't strictly relative to the narrative. This includes things like Achaemenid Arms and Armor, the history of the Medes, and of course, my thoughts on Zack Snyder's and Frank Miller's 300. Patreon supporters at the $5 tier will have access to a special code that unlocks the Lyceum Plus feed without having to change platforms if they still want to use the Lyceum app. More information about that and other Patreon benefits can be found at patreon.com slash historyofpersia. If Lyceum sounds interesting to you, you can find it in the Apple Store, Google Play, or online at lyceum.fm. That's L-Y-C-E-U-M dot F-M. So it's been a little longer than I would have preferred between this and the last narrative episode. So just to play some catch-up, the last episode covered from 498 to 495 BCE, and the three-pronged land assault against the Ionian rebels in western Anatolia. Although Doricis and Hemaeus, two of the four Persian generals featured in that episode, died during their campaigns, the counteroffensive was generally successful, 
and General Otanes and Satrap Artifernes were successful in their missions. The northern half or so of the Anatolian coastline was once again subject to Persian authority, and Otanes and Artifernes had begun working their way south into Ionia. Further south, Dorises had died in Caria, but had also succeeded in crushing two rebel armies. By the end of these first offensives, Aristagoras of Miletus, the supposed progenitor of this insurrection, had fled to Thrace and died the ignominious death of a failed colonizer. That is, killed by the locals in a dire situation of his own making after getting overconfident and trying to claim far too much territory. Now, we have to loop back to 497 BC because the next phase of the war against the Ionians just wouldn't make much sense without covering the fourth front of the Persian offensive, Cyprus. You might remember that one of the first things the Ionians did in the rebellion was capture or burn almost the entire Persian fleet, which was docked at Myus after the disastrous invasion of Naxos. This was a problem for the Persians, but not a disaster. It meant they couldn't effectively besiege and blockade most of the coastal Greek cities because most of their fleet was gone and most of what remained was in Ionian hands. Despite that, Satrap Artifernes had been given three highly effective generals and the most formidable land armies in the known world. Cyprus, on the other hand, had the potential to become a disaster. Taken by Cambyses before he invaded Egypt, the large island in the eastern Mediterranean was key to controlling both the seas and the surrounding lands. And obviously, as an island, the Persians needed a fleet to recapture it. Since at least Darius's campaigns in eastern Europe, almost 20 years earlier, the Persian fleet seems to have been largely composed from Ionian Greeks. Greek cities provided many of the ships and crews from the Anatolian coastal cities. Of course, this was no longer an option, thus a new fleet had to be sourced from all of the other sources. Mostly, this would have meant the Phoenician cities of the Levantine coast. Phoenicia was famed for its cedarwood and seafaring heritage, and thus was the natural choice. Crews also would have been largely Phoenician, but there were probably some loyalist Greeks, Egyptians, Cilicians, and even some from riverboat crews in the inland provinces and the coastal communities of the Persian Gulf. The ships would have been built anew or conscripted for the new war in approximately 497 BCE. The rapidly reconstructed Persian fleet gathered in Cilicia on the southern side of Asia Minor. Cilicia was an ideal staging ground for the invasion of Cyprus. It is immediately north of the island, and though it bordered some of the regions that were in revolt, the surrounding mountains create a natural buffer while still allowing for close contact with the land operations than if they had built their base in, say, Phoenicia. So what exactly were they getting into when they set sail? The last time I checked in on Cyprus was back in episode 28, The Grand Tour Part 3, and in that episode I cut the discussion of Cyprus short because I knew this episode would be coming soon, 
not quite as soon as I thought at the time, but soon. Our knowledge of ancient Cyprus, especially prior to the Achaemenid period, is pretty slim. There are a few otherwise unidentified locations from Bronze Age inscriptions in Mycenaean Greece, the Hittite Empire, and Egypt that might refer to the large island. Herodotus tells us, and we have the archaeological confirmation, that the city of Kurion was founded by Achaean settlers. Kurion appears in the records of Pharaoh Ramses III, so this settlement on Cyprus was probably the result of Greeks fleeing from the mainland in the chaos of the Bronze Age collapse, which is not unlike many other Greek groups associated with the so-called Sea Peoples. I've discussed those more ancient topics elsewhere, mostly in the first episode of both the regular podcast and Patreon bonuses. A unique dialect of Greek developed on Cyprus, related to the relatively uncommon Arcadian Greek of the mainland. So there was probably some significant Greek colonization after the 12th century BCE. Cyprus mostly vanishes from the historical record until the Assyrian king Sargon II conquered seven kings in the land of Ea, in the district of Iadana. Iadana is thought to be the Mediterranean islands, and Ea is probably Cyprus. That would be in 709 BCE, and by 672, Assyrian kings listed ten Cypriot kingdoms in their territories. Even later in the Assyrian period, 13 total kingdoms appear in records of the island. After the Assyrians fell, the Cypriot kingdoms enjoyed a period of political independence. In this same time, their culture was heavily influenced by the Phoenicians, who became the major seaborne trade powers of the day. Phoenician influence flooded into Cypriot art, architecture, and religion. Finally, Cyprus intersects with our previous narrative when it was conquered by the Egyptian pharaoh Amos II. It was, of course, conquered from Amos by Cambyses around 525 in preparation for the conquest of Egypt itself. Egypt had always exerted some cultural influence on the island, and by the 6th century BCE, we see a fascinating agglomeration of motifs and beliefs on Cyprus. There is artwork depicting Cypriot men in Egyptian wigs with Assyrian beards while wearing Phoenician armor in a Phoenician-style building, and the inscription is written in Cypriot Greek. The Mesopotamian goddess Ishtar, Phoenician Melkart, and Egyptian Thoth could all be worshipped in the same city. After the Persian conquest, Greek influence started to rise and Egyptian and Mesopotamian influence slowly faded away. But Cyprus was always a fusion of Greek and Phoenician cultural elements in a distinctly Cypriot landscape. So we are entering into a fascinating and possibly bizarre cultural hodgepodge. But of course, that doesn't explain anything about military concerns. As an island, Cyprus could effectively blockade itself, if all of the little kingdoms worked together. As it happens, that was mostly the case in 497 BCE, 
but that was a surprising achievement for an island that sustained as many as 13 independent kingdoms at a time. The open terrain and Near Eastern influence also led to a different style of warfare than we see in other theaters of the Greek Wars. Cypriots employed chariots and archers in ways rarely seen in the traditional Greek armies. However, that may actually have been to the benefit of Artibios and the Persians, because it was more similar to their preferred way of doing things back in Mesopotamia anyway. That brings us to our first encounter on this podcast with a place called Salome. But this isn't what you might think. In the 5th century BCE, there were actually two Salomes in the eastern Mediterranean. One was a small island off the coast of mainland Greece, located between Attica and the Peloponnese. Ultimately, that would be the significantly more famous of the pair to most modern listeners. But we're not there yet. The other was a city-state kingdom on the eastern coast of Cyprus, and that is where our story today begins in earnest. The king of Salome at the time was Gorgos, a loyal servant and vassal to the Persian Empire. When word of Aristagoras and the Ionians burning the fleet and deposing the tyrants of Ionia reached Cyprus, Gorgos's younger brother, Anesilos, tried to persuade the king to join them in their rebellion. Herodotus suggests that Onesilos kept bringing it up and was ignored or brushed aside by his brother until he just gave up and enacted one of the funniest conspiracies I've ever encountered in history. Onesilos gathered up all of the anti-Persian faction in Salamis and waited until Gorgos went outside the city walls for any reason. As soon as he left the city, Onesilos and company- I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. 
Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. He slammed the gates behind him and locked the door. No fratricide, no imprisonment, no convoluted politicking. Just wait until the authority figure is outside and then bolt the door. It's a tactic employed by single-digit children as old as time. Gorgos got hold of a ship and fled to the mainland, where he sent word to the Persians, probably the nearest satrap or other local governor. Meanwhile, Onesilos sent letters to all of the other kings of Cyprus, asking them to go into revolt with him and the Ionians. Every single kingdom on the island agreed, with the exception of Amathus on the south coast. Onesilos, as the ringleader on Cyprus, gathered an alliance of Cypriot kings and besieged the Amethusians to remove the last Persian loyalists. Sailing into this mess of rebellion and petty kings was a Persian fleet under the command of a general called Artibios. When Onesilos and the Cypriot rebels heard that a Persian fleet was amassing in Cilicia, they sent messengers to the Ionian rebels asking for mutual aid. Still at the outset of the war, remember this is just 497, a fleet was sent bearing reinforcements, probably mostly formed from ships captured at Mius. The Greeks and Persians landed on Cyprus in different places, but almost at the same time. A Persian army, under the command of Artibios, landed near Salamis, while the Phoenician fleet sailed clockwise around the island to relieve the loyalists besieged at Amathus. The Cypriots marshaled their forces and turned around to face the Persians on land, while the Ionians sailed counterclockwise to intercept the fleet. For a change, Herodotus offers a detailed description of the battles. Writing about 50 years later, it's not unrealistic to think that he may have heard stories from actual veterans of the Cypriot campaign. Whether that makes it true is more debatable, but given the level of detail here compared to the paucity of information for the mainland campaigns, Herodotus probably had a witness, or maybe witnesses' children as his sources, and I'm gonna tell the whole story. Outside of Salamis is an open plain, and the Cypriot army, returning from Amathus, drew up battle lines and faced the Persians on that open space. According to the Greek historian, Onesilos positioned himself directly opposite Artibios on the battlefield, in place for a face-to-face -face encounter with his Persian counterpart. Maybe this is just storytelling, because it seems a little too cinematic to be real. The odd story that follows is definitely storytelling. Herodotus tells us about a conversation between Onesilos and a Hippaspist. A Hippaspist is some kind of Greek infantryman of status, but also somehow different from a hoplite. It's not totally clear what the difference was, or if there was a difference. It may just be an alternate word, or it was an infantryman personally associated with an officer as some kind of assistant. The word itself means shield-bearer. When we reach the end of the Achaemenid period, 
we'll see a very clear definition of Hippaspus emerge in the armies of Macedon, but not yet. Anyway, Anesilos was informed that Artibios was riding a horse that had been specifically trained to rear up and trample soldiers when it approached them. Trying to work out a countermeasure for this, in his planned one-on-one battle with the Persian general, Anesilos asked his shield-bearer if he wanted to attack Artibios or the horse when they reached one another. The idea was that one of the pair would kill the horse, and the other would attack the Persian. According to Herodotus, always careful to uphold the social order of his day, the Hippaspist says that it would only be right for the king to face the general, and the shield-bearer to attack the lowly horse. If there is any truth to any of this at all, that soldier was almost certainly trying to avoid a face-to-face encounter with a much better trained and equipped general. The two land armies clashed outside of Salamis, and Anesilos charged at Atibios. Again, in the unlikely event that this is what happened. If it is, then Anesilos must have looked insane charging out of formation at a mounted rider on foot. The horse reared up to pummel Anesilos with its hooves, and the king of Salamis blocked the initial blows with his shield while the Hippaspist came around with a scythe, as in the tool used to harvest grain, most famously carried by the Grim Reaper, and sliced off the horse's front legs. Artibios came crashing down, and Anesilos killed the Persian general. There is so much going on here for a relatively short story. On one hand, we get one of the rare moments in ancient literature that really does illustrate just how brutal ancient warfare could be. Nasty injuries to horses probably didn't shock an ancient audience, but at least to me, scything off a horse's legs comes across as a pretty gory and surprising detail. On the other hand, this is almost certainly one of the few times that Herodotus falls into pure storytelling mode. Two lone warriors squaring off in a dramatic confrontation amidst a battle and victory going to the craftier fighter is a format as old as war stories themselves. Maybe in the far-off Bronze Age past, or the less populated and developed parts of the world, people fought like this, but not the Iron Age Mediterranean. All warfare, but notably Greek warfare, relied on well-trained, or at least well-structured formations and established tactics. The leading commander of the army charging out of formation definitely didn't fit into that, but it does fit into a dramatic narrative. This incident on Cyprus, in particular, is reminiscent of many similar one-on-one engagements described in things like the Iliad, the most famous epic war story of the Greek world. While not historically accurate by any real standard, it's hard to fault Herodotus here, Much of his histories was probably intended for the purpose of dramatic, performative readings, not unlike the recital of epic myths from the Iliad. It's still a trope that we love to see in stories today, too, 
how many movies and shows set up huge battles but focus in on the heroism and villainy of the main characters breaking wildly out of formation into a dramatic melee. Just off the top of my head, I can think of 300, Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, Gladiator, Star Wars, Avengers Infinity War, and of course there are dozens if not hundreds of more examples. The valor of a known hero is just more compelling to an audience, even when it makes no sense. Despite the individual success of Anesilos at the outset of the battle, the Cypriots were not destined for victory. Despite the death of the Persian general, Artibios probably really did die at Salamis. The battle raged on. The Persians had either conspired with one of the Cyprian kings, or simply gained the upper hand because Stesinor, king of Curion, abandoned the field. With significant chunks of the army in retreat, the Persians broke the Cypriot lines and sent them into a full-blown rout. Among the dead were two Cypriot kings, Aristokipros from Soloi and Onesilos himself. Onesilos's corpse was decapitated and the head was sent to Amathus, the loyalist city he had previously besieged. Strangely, Herodotus says that a hero cult developed around the worship of Anesilos in Amathus. He attributes this to an oracle, but why the Amathusians would worship their enemy is still bizarre to me. Salamis itself surrendered and accepted Gorgos back as their king, while the Persians dispersed across the island and besieged the other Cypriot cities. Meanwhile, the Ionian fleet had been fighting their Phoenician counterparts in the waters on the southeast side of the island. When word reached the Ionians that the Cypriot rebels had lost three kings in the battle outside of Salamis, the Greeks gave up the ghost and abandoned Cyprus to its fate. In short order, the island was resubjugated by the Persian Empire, and Herodotus shifts his focus to events I described last time. In a rare example of actual evidence for Achaemenid battles, a siege mound at the city of Paplyphasus on the southwest corner of the island has been excavated and dated to this revolt. This is one of those mounds which I described the first time the Persians conquered Ionia, an artificial hill of dirt built up against the walls of the city to form a ramp until the besieged army could just climb over the walls. Soloi, whose king had died at Salamis, was the last Cypriot city to fall after a five-month siege. That siege, Herodotus tells us, only ended when the Persians managed to tunnel under the walls and throw open the gates from the inside. Remarkably, the Cypriots seemed to have retained their autonomy even after the revolt, Individual kingdoms were still given the right to self-govern as long as they paid their tribute and provided ships to the navy. Some of the more minor kingdoms, if they were independent and not just dependent cities that resisted the Persians on their own, were absorbed into their neighbors' jurisdictions. Whether that was by Persian order or just Cypriot kings taking advantage of smaller cities weakened in the aftermath of the Persian attack, is entirely unknown to us. Overall, the Persian presence on the island remained fairly limited. 
we do hear about two Persian garrisons from some later sources, but only minimal evidence has ever turned up. Some statues appeared wearing Persian clothes, and a few other pieces of artwork depicted Persians, but we don't see evidence of Persian tombs, coins, or religious innovations. On the other hand, if the Persians used Phoenician soldiers and emissaries to enforce the imperial presence on the island, we might not notice at all. The Phoenicians, so far as we know, were generally loyal to the great kings, and Cypriot culture was highly influenced by Phoenicia. It would be a little atypical since the Persians often sent ethnic Persians and Medes to act as a backbone for satrapal troops, but a Phoenician occupation on behalf of the Persians could fly under the archaeological radar. What happened next on Cyprus, or in the Persian navy, isn't totally clear. We don't have much of a timeline. If we take the most common idea that Artibio set sail from Cilicia when the other three generals set out from Sardis, then the last sieges would have wrapped up in early 496. This puts it in line with the same time the land operations were wrapping up. The navy, including new recruits and ships conscripted from the island, would thus have spent the remainder of the years doing repairs, training new Cypriots, and making plans for the campaigns of 495. Meanwhile, Otanes and Artaphernes were wrapping up operations back on the mainland. Aeolus and the Troad were subjugated, the Cypriots were back in line, an Ionian fleet was forced into retreat, and several Greek armies had been smashed in Caria. Despite these successes on multiple fronts, the Persians were ready to enact a new strategy. That strategy was a full frontal assault on the rebel base of Miletus. That will be the story next time, as we reach what was supposed to be the end of the rebellion. Until then, if you want more information about the show, or me, you can find it at historyofpersiapodcast.com. You'll also find my bibliography, the Achaemenid family tree down to the children of Xerxes, more information about that coming soon, and the support page where you can see all of the different ways you can financially support the show. You can also support the show by leaving a review on the uh, service of your choice, Podcast Addict, Podchaser, iTunes, tons of things have platforms to leave reviews these days, so please give me your feedback, I always enjoy seeing it. I also encourage everyone to share the show with people they know. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, share it on social media and spread the word that the history of Persia is here. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line 
prop or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. Probably the easiest thing I've ever done. The medication comes in the mail and it's very easy to use. I've been able to live my normal lifestyle and I've lost 20 pounds already and I've never felt better. It changed my life. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.